We're going to be looking at Psalm 100, and I want to begin by asking you a question. Who is the most influential person in your life today? And maybe you're thinking of a teacher or someone you worked for, someone you respected in your past, maybe a parent, a spouse, but I'm not really talking about somebody from the past who has made you who you are today. I'm talking about your everyday life. Every day, who is the most influential person in your life? And I can see the wheels turning in some of you. Some of you are thinking, I should say Jesus. And that would be a Sunday school answer, but not the right answer most likely. If you're like most of us, the most influential person in your life is you. Uh, you talk to yourself more than anybody talks to you. And when you talk to yourself, if you're like most of us, you almost always believe everything you tell yourself. Uh, you almost always listen to yourself. You never interrupt yourself. You never tell yourself to be quiet and listen to something else, at least almost never, if you're like most of us. You and I are the most influential people in our lives. We listen to ourselves. Even though we know that Jeremiah 17.9 is in the Bible, that our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, and who can know it? And even though perhaps a lot of you have memorized that verse and have earned points and prizes for telling that verse to other people, still, we naturally tend to believe ourselves, to believe what we tell ourselves. Jesus explained in Matthew chapter 12 that everything we say and everything we do comes from our heart. And you understand when we talk about the heart, we're not talking about the, the muscle that pumps blood through our bodies. We're talking about our way of thinking. We're talking about our inner self, the soul or the spirit. We're talking about the way we process life because we are always processing, always interpreting everything that happens around us, everything people say to us, everything people don't say to us that we thought they were going to say to us. We're always thinking about those kind of things, and that is all happening in our heart. I think, at least as I think about it, the simplest way to understand the heart is to reduce it down to maybe some of the simplest, most basic issues, which I think are what we believe and what we want, our beliefs and our desires. Explain for me, anyway, what the heart really is, what it involves, what I believe and what I want. So we need to evaluate. If we're going to stay on a true course, we need to evaluate, is my belief true? Has it honestly come from the revelation of God? And is what I want consistent with what God wants? Am I serving my desire? Am I expecting other people to serve my desire? Or am I using my desire to drive me in dependence upon God. I, I believe that's where God wants our heart to be. When we are pursuing heart change, these are the two areas I think we need to deal with, our beliefs and our desires. And I want to look at Psalm 100 from that perspective this morning. Now, I understand you've been working through the book of Psalms this summer, and 
our church in Staten, Oregon, is doing the same thing. We're going through the book of Psalms. We're on, I think, 41 or 42 today. Uh, you're a little ahead of us on Psalm 100. And you've probably heard already that these are, a lot of these are poems that have been written by several different authors in worship and instruction about what it means to follow after God. When Americans think about poetry, we usually think of roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you. That's our idea of poetry. We expect to have some kind of rhyme. We expect to have some kind of rhythm or cadence to, to the poem, and that's poetry in our minds. But, of course, Hebrew poetry didn't work like that, especially after you translate Hebrew into English. You're, you're probably not going to see words that rhyme. And most likely, there's not going to be much of a cadence or rhythm. That's not the point of biblical poetry. Uh, as I see it, most biblical poetry, you have at least a couple of stanzas or a couple of lines or verses, and normally the first line makes the statement. The second line either completes that statement or contrasts it or maybe just repeats it again. And we see the same thing here in Psalm 100. As I look at this, I see two stanzas. Verses 1 through 3 is a stanza. Verses 4 through 5 is another one. You have a statement made in verses 1 through 3, and then the statement is expanded or repeated in verses 4 and 5. And in these, we have two uh, concepts that relate to worship, that help guide our worship. So the psalmist said in verse 1, "'Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth.'" And this verse has been used as a comfort for a lot of people like me who cannot sing. Uh, they'll say, well, at least I can make a joyful noise. Uh, and I know a lot of people are in that same boat. Uh, I have no musical talent whatsoever. I love music, uh, but I cannot produce any of it in any way. And so I've always thought, at least I can make a joyful noise. You know, and when I say I can't sing, I mean it. Okay, I'm not, it's not false modesty in any way. I have one note and one tune that I use no matter what song I'm singing, which sounds bad, but if you stop and think about it, it means that I already know just about every song that's ever been written, <laughs> uh, plus a few that haven't. So every once in a while, my wife and I are often in other churches, and she will lean over to me once in a while and say, do you know this song? And she sings beautifully. And I say, no, I don't, but it doesn't matter. I just sing it like I sing every other song and it seems to work. But that's not really what the psalmist is talking about. He's not giving us an alternative way of worshiping if we can't sing. The joyful noise that he's talking about is actually a glad shout. It is still a coordinated, intentional declaration of a group of people stating something that God has done or something about his character. Make a glad shout about the Lord. And then he goes on in verse 2. He says, serve the Lord with gladness. And true worship is not just what we say, what we sing, but true worship also involves what we do. It involves our lives. It involves a life of service dedicated to God. We serve God by serving the needs of other people. That's one of the ways of serving God. And we do it with gladness. We serve not to earn favor with God or somehow to attain something from Him. We serve as an expression of our gratitude 
for who God is and what He's done in and through us. Serve the Lord with gladness. And then he went on in verse 2, come into His presence with singing. The singing is not just, you know, to produce some kind of an emotional response. The purpose of our singing is not to just prepare us for the preaching or to get us in a certain mood. The purpose of our singing is to please God. The song itself brings honor and glory. God loves it when we sing to Him. We are together performing for God in a way that pleases Him. That's our singing. And these are the instructions that the psalmist gives us in verses 1 and 2 concerning worship. But I want to go back to a phrase that I just skipped over in verse 1. Who is it that makes the glad shout? Who is it who comes before his presence with singing? Who is it that comes and serves God? If you just answer that question without looking at the text, you might say, well, it's the people of God, the nation of Israel, the church. We're the ones who are to worship God. And that makes a lot of sense, but that's not what he's saying here. What he said was, all the earth. All the earth is to make this glad shout, and all the earth is to serve God and come into His presence with singing. It is a reminder to me that this is talking about something that is going to happen in the future. Yes, these are instructions that apply to us, but there is coming a day when all the earth will make a glad shout and serve God and come into His presence with singing. When Christ is ruling again, and the entire earth is under His reign, all of us together from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation will be prepared and will be worshiping Him. In the meantime, we are developing that audience, that group, to be involved in worship. As you look on in Psalm 100, he goes on in verse 3 to talk about what we know. And he said, uh, verse 3, that we, we know that the Lord is God. Uh, know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Know that the Lord is God. This is not a fourth instruction. We could say, come into His presence with singing, knowing that the Lord is God, because we know that the Lord is God. This knowledge is the foundation. This is the reason for our worship. This is what is going on in our heart. We sing, we make noise, we serve God because in our heart, we are already convinced that the Lord is God. He has made us and we are His people. What is going on in our heart is what leads us in worship. It's not just a ritual. It's not just a, a, a list of things we follow, but it is the result of our thinking, our way of, produce, of looking at life. This should help us recognize how important our heart really is. And what I'd like to do is go to another passage of Scripture that really brings this out very clearly, I think. If you'll follow me over to Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17, if you bring that up, I'm going to read verses 5 through 10. We read in verse 5, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. 
He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness and in uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He, shall, he is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. In those verses, Jeremiah gives us four important pictures. The first picture is the heart. I'm starting at the end of the passage, verses 9 and 10. And in those two verses, Jeremiah makes two, four statements about the heart. First, he said the heart is, is deceitful above all things. Uh, and he's not just saying the heart lies to us. We know that's true. But this word deceitful really means corrupt. It is polluted. In its nature, our heart is corrupt. That's, that's the best description of where we are in our hearts. The second description, he said it is desperately sick. It is incurable. There is no hope for improving our heart or making our hearts any better. We only need a new heart given to us in Christ. But until then, our old heart will not be cured. It will not get better. It will not reform. The third statement, he said in verse 9, we have no understanding of our own hearts. We cannot even understand how deceitful and how desperately sick our hearts really are. We naturally tend to assume that our hearts are in the right place. We naturally believe our hearts. That comes naturally to us because we don't understand. And then the fourth statement he made in verse 10, and this is the good news, God does understand our hearts. He does know what we're thinking. He does know what's going on beneath the surface. And we can ask Him to reveal. We can ask Him to search and examine our hearts and, and help us understand areas in which we need to grow and change. That's the first picture, the picture of the heart. Now would you come up to the beginning of the passage, verses 5 and 6. We see the second picture, which is a, uh, a shrub in the desert. He said in verse 5, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Now, Jeremiah is writing the words, but they come directly from God himself. And his first sentence there in verse 5, cursed is the man who trusts in man. And when God said that, I don't think this was a threat. I don't think he was saying, I'm going to curse you if you trust in man. I think he was making a simple statement of fact. The word curse there really means empty or bitter. And I think what God is saying is, trusting in yourself or trusting in other people leads to an empty, bitter life. And then if you want a pic perfect picture of that, look at verse 6, the shrub in the desert. I don't know of any better illustration of an empty, bitter life than that. How many of you would love to be a shrub in the desert? No, of course not. Nobody plans for that. Nobody goes out and plants shrubs out in the desert. They just end up there 
as the seeds blow through and germinate. Nobody plans for that to happen. Nobody wants that to happen. How does it happen? Well, Jeremiah explained in verse 5, it's because we're trusting in man. Now, remember, these are the people of God that Jeremiah is speaking to. These are people who do believe in God, who have heard His promises, and probably, for the most part, believe in those promises. But the word trust there means to, to rely on, to depend on. And it is possible for us to believe in God, to believe the promises of God, to like the promises of God, but we're not really relying on that. We're relying on myself, or I'm relying on other people to meet my needs. And that leads to an empty, bitter life. The, set, the third picture he gave us is in verses 7 and 8. He pictured a tree that has been planted by the river, the exact opposite of the bush out in the desert. How does this tree get to be by the river? It was intentionally planted there. And it was planted there through intentional, determined trust in God. Making the decision, when I come to this fork, when I come to this time of testing and trial, I'm not going to rely on my own resources or the resources I see around me. I'm going to rely, I'm going to depend on the work of God in this point, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God. That's how I become a tree planted by the river. The fourth picture is not quite as obvious, but it's the sun or the heat. And heat in Scripture is often used as an illustration of trial. And the same sun is beating down on both trees, the shrub in the desert and the tree planted by the river. Both of these people have to endure the same kinds of trials. One does not escape because of their, what's going on in their hearts. It's part of everybody's life. How does the sun affect the shrub in the desert? Well, the shrub, make, I mean, the sun makes a miserable life even more miserable, doesn't it? And that's sort of how trials tend to affect a person who's living that way. When my life is like that, and another trial comes, and then another one comes, and they just keep piling on top, and every time I'm thinking, how much more can I take of this? My life is going downhill. Things are getting worse and worse. These trials are making a miserable life even more miserable. How does the sun affect the tree that's planted by the river? Well, the tree planted by the river needs the sun, doesn't it? It needs the heat to produce fruit and to be healthy. And the, the person living that way recognizes the value of trial. They're no more pleasant or easy but we recognize that God is using this. More than using it, He has sent this by His providence and in His sovereignty. He is working for my glorifying Him, my growth in Christ, my ultimate good through every single one of these trials. And so they are accomplishing something that I need and something that I want, even though it's, you know, the trial itself is not pleasant. That's what is going on in our hearts, and those are the hearts that we bring to worship. So let's come back now to Psalm 100 and verse 3. I like to use these pictures in Jeremiah 17 
uh, in my counseling a lot because I think it helps us to recognize just how important our hearts really are and what we're thinking about. But often as I'm going through these pictures with people, I get sort of a blank stare in response. And sometimes people will say to me, I already know that. You know, I already know, and I do believe in God. I've prayed about my problem. I've asked God to take it away. So I'm trusting Him. That's not my problem. My problem is that my husband is an idiot. So if you would help me with that, you know, that's what I really need. So then I usually ask, well, which of these two trees is a better picture of your life right now? And most people will say, well, my life is like a shrub in the desert. That's why they're there for counseling. And then my next question is usually, what makes you say that? What is it that causes you to believe that this, your life is like a shrub in the desert? And in most cases, people will point back to the sun, the trial, the heat. I am depressed today because my son is in jail. I am fearful because I was just diagnosed with cancer. I am anxious because I hate my job and I'm too old to find another job. I am discouraged because my husband is an idiot. You know, whatever it is, we tend to connect our trial as the cause of our condition. And what we're leaving out is the heart. What we're leaving out is our response, our way of dealing with those difficulties. And that's what's happening in our hearts. And leaving that out leaves out the one most obvious sense of ability to change that we have. Because I can't change my circumstances. I can't change the people around me. I can change the way I think about them. I can change what's going on in my heart through the power of God and the power of His Word. So that's what is important. As we come to worship, we are looking at and dealing with what is going on in our hearts. Now, would you look at verse 3 of Psalm 100? And he says, We know that the Lord, He is God, the only true and living God, the infinitely perfect God, the self-existent God. No one has created Him. No one has made Him. The self-sufficient God, the God who needs nothing from us. That's the God that we're worshiping. He is absolutely in control. It is He who has made us, we read in verse 3. He is not just the self-existent God, He is our Creator. He is the one who has formed us and formed everything around us. He is our Creator, and as our Creator, He is our ultimate authority. And then third, he said in verse 3, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. We belong to him. We are not our own. We are not free. We are not able to choose our own destiny or chart out our own course. We are not in control. And in that sense, we are not free. We are, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we admit it or not, whether we even believe in God or not, Every single human being is under the authority and the work and the providence of God. 
Even Satan, who was also created by God, is under the authority of God. He can never do more than God allows him to do. He is always under the authority of God. We need to remember that. The second concept I see in verses 4 and 5 is that our belief leads us to worship. And these instructions for worship are uh, based in our beliefs. Just in case you missed it the first time. He brings it again in verses 4 and 5. He gives us instructions in verse 4. The second stanza repeats the first. It gives the same pattern, but more specifically now. Uh, He is now talking more about when we come together to worship. And these activities of worship are caused by our beliefs. They are uh, built on a foundation of what we believe in our hearts. People will often say when they're up here leading worship, this is not a performance. We're not performing for you. But really, worship is a performance. It's just that you are not the audience. When we're standing here or sitting together, we are not the audience. We are all the performers of worship, and we're performing for God. God is the audience. He is the one that we're seeking to please in our singing and in the preaching and in our praying and all that we do in worship is for the purpose of pleasing God. God is most pleased when we are coming to Him with hearts that are convinced already of the goodness, the love, and the faithfulness of God. One of the best ways we can prepare for worship is to fix our minds on that reality. And that's why the psalmist goes on to say that we worship convinced of His goodness, love, and faithfulness of God. We go on in verse 5, those three statements, the Lord is good. He is good by nature. That is who God is. He is never not good. He does not have the capacity to be not good because by nature, this is who He is, which means everything He does, everything He, he uses is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And throughout the Old Testament, you see this. It's not just love. It's almost always steadfast love, unchanging love, eternal love. The longer you are married to your spouse, usually you grow in your love toward each other. I think back to when we were first married, my wife and I, I was 19 years old when we got married. I didn't know what it meant to be a loving husband. I wanted to be. But over time, we have both grown in deeper love for one another, and I expect that will continue for the rest of our lives. God's love is not like that. He doesn't love you more today than He did five years ago, because His love is unchanging. His love for you has always been at the ultimate level, a level which only God can produce. He loves you with a steadfast, unchanging, eternal love that will never grow or shrink. And then third, his faithfulness endures to all generations. God always keeps every single promise he makes. And so my question for you, when you come here to worship, are these the thoughts that are in your heart? Are you focused on these realities? 
God is good. No matter what is going on in my life, He is good. He is loving, and He is faithful. One of the ways that I, my wife and I have been working with our organization is to serve as part of a member care team, which is just a way of reaching out to other missionaries with, within our group. And our specific way of doing that has been a lot of counseling, especially over the last year and a half with a lot of our missionaries, many of whom are stuck here in the States because they cannot get back to their country. So almost all the time that I used to spend traveling to other countries, I'm spending in front of my computer uh, doing Zoom counseling with somebody. And I love doing it. I'm grateful for that opportunity. About a year ago, I met a couple who was serving as missionaries in Asia. Uh, The adults are probably in their mid-40s. And before they became missionaries, the guy was an electrician for about 15 years before they went to the mission field, uh, somewhere on the East Coast. And somehow, uh, God began to lead in his life, and he began to see that God was leading them into missions. And so, he felt like the first thing he needed to do was go to seminary. So, he moved his family to Louisville, Kentucky, and they, they went to seminary. Of course, the guy also had a family to take care of and support, so it took him a little longer than it would take most people. He spent maybe five or six years finishing his seminary education. After that, they had to choose a mission organization, and then they had to go out and raise support, which also took a little longer than usual. They spent about five or six years doing that. Uh, Their family consists of four kids. Their oldest is their son, who is married, uh, and their next daughter was a sophomore in Bible college. So, of course, they would be staying back here in the States, and then they would take their two younger daughters with them, a high school junior and a 10-year-old little girl. Finally, after 12, 13 years of getting ready, finally they arrived in their mission field in early March 2020. Yeah. So you don't have to think too hard about what was going on back then. And really, they arrived in this country just in time to be locked down. Here they are living in a strange apartment. It's not even their apartment surrounded by belongings that do not belong to them, they've never seen before, living around people that they cannot communicate with, and they have no idea how to go shopping or what to do, how to live their lives in this strange country, and they are not completely confined, but for the most part, isolated in their little apartment with very little to no help. So maybe you can understand how they might feel some anxiety. Along with that, shortly after they arrived on the field, their oldest son and his wife gave birth to a little baby, their first grandchild, who did not survive the birth. And the family knew that this was a possibility, so they had been praying that God would somehow work a miracle, but God did not give them what they were asking for. And uh, so what would you do if you were in their place? Well, you'd probably do the same thing they wanted to do, and that would be come back home, the same thing their mission wanted them to do, because the family needed to be together during this time. They needed to support each other. But it was impossible. They were locked down. They were not able to travel. So for it would take another year uh, before they could even be with their son, who was going through deep depression. 
their daughter who was spiraling downhill and their two girls at home who were both facing anxiety, panic attacks, depression. So this was about the time I got to be introduced to them. Finally, after a year, they were able to come back to the States and reunite with their family, and they got here just in time for the husband to contract COVID and have to go to the hospital and spend a week on oxygen. They've been through a lot of trial, a lot of difficulty. And in many ways, these trials have been piling on top of them and still are. I am happy to say, though, that they are genuinely trusting God through all of this. And through severe trial that I've never been through myself, they are focused on the fact that God is still good. Even with all this, He is good. Even though He did not give them what they were asking for, still the goodness of God overrules that and is not changed by what they're enduring. God still loves them, and they are confident in His love and growing in His love. And they recognize that God is faithful. He is still keeping every single promise He has made to them. Those are hearts that are prepared for worship that pleases God. And I'm sure many of you are facing trial and difficulty. And if we gave you the opportunity, you might be able to share ways in which God has not done what you were hoping He would do or has done something you were hoping He would never do. May I encourage you this morning to be in control of your thinking, depending on the Spirit of God for that power. And instead of just listening to ourselves and thinking the thoughts that tend to ramble in our heads. Take control of that and begin bringing your thoughts, your way of thinking under the truth of God. Intentionally fix your minds on the goodness, the love, the faithfulness of God. Would you pray with me? Father, today we are thankful for your promises. We're thankful, Lord, that we have confidence today that as you call us and lead us through difficult, trying circumstances over which we have really no control, that we can trust you to shepherd us, to lead us through those things in a way that pleases you, in a way that glorifies you. Lord, I would ask that you would do a work in each of our hearts and bring us to a place where this really is our desire. None of us desires trial and difficulty, but may we desire to use those things to please you as an opportunity to worship. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.